You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. I have a very special announcement this week. Hidden History is officially more popular than Joe Biden's weird podcast where he rambles on about Fig Newtons or whatever. In the middle of last week, I briefly entered the top 100 in the United States, which is something Joe's Malarkey Pod has never done. Obviously, that means I'd like to thank everyone who has supported the show over the years. Uh, Without you, I would just be talking to myself. If you want to encourage me to keep absolutely pulling numbers on Joe Biden, then I'd love it if you subscribed and reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The newest episode is always available on www.hiddenhistory.show. And if you like, you can follow the show on Twitter to get each new episode as soon as it comes out. The handle is at Hidden History Pod with uh, no E in hidden because of those damn character limits. So with that out of the way, it's time to get on to the show. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 68, Androcles and the Lion. So a long time ago, Aesop wrote a fable that goes like this. A slave named Androcles once escaped from his master and fled to the forest. As he was wandering about there, he came upon a lion, lying down, moaning and groaning. At first he turned to flee, but finding that the lion did not pursue him, he turned back and went up to him. As he came near, the lion put out his paw which was all swollen and bleeding, and Androcles found that a large thorn had gotten into it and was causing all the pain. He pulled out the thorn and bound up the paw of the lion, who was soon able to rise and lick the hand of Androcles like a dog. Then the lion took Androcles to his cave, and every day used to bring him meat from which to live. But shortly afterwards, both Androcles and the lion were captured, and the slave was sentenced to be thrown to the lion after the latter had been kept without food for several days. The emperor and all his court came to see the spectacle, and Androcles was let out into the middle of the arena. Soon the lion was let loose from his den and rushed bounding and roaring towards his victim. But as soon as he came near to Androcles, he recognized his friend and fawned upon him and licked his hands like a friendly dog. The emperor, surprised at this, summoned Androcles to him, who told him the whole story, whereupon the slave was pardoned and freed, and the lion let loose to his native forest. Now, I've always thought that this fable was a bit silly. And granted, yes, fables are not supposed to be the most realistic things, but I decided that I would try my hand at revising it, to see if I could just make it a little better. Here's here's what I came up with. A slave named Androcles once escaped from his master and fled to the forest. As he was wandering about there, he came upon a lion, lying down, moaning and groaning. At first he turned to flee, but finding that the lion did not pursue him, he turned back and went up to him. As he came near, the lion put out his paw, which was all swollen and bleeding, and Androcles found that a large thorn had gotten into it and was causing all the pain. 
he pulled out the thorn and bound up the paw of the lion, who promptly ate him, because that's what lions do. So, obviously I'm going somewhere with this. I like to think that I don't particularly waste your time with this show. Unless, of course, you're only sticking around for the third part in my Robert Moses series, which I don't really think is ever coming at this point. So, I guess the question is, if you were Androcles, would you be more surprised if the lion ate you, or if it befriended you? I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you'd probably be more surprised by the latter. And why is that? It's because we can't reasonably expect lions to act contrary to their nature. Okay, that's all well and good if I'm talking about lions this week, but as you can probably guess, I'm not. As you can probably guess, I want to talk about the nature and expectations we have of other people. Now, of course, this isn't the perfect analogy. There are many things that separate us from lions. We wear pants, we commit felonies, we collect decorative plates. But the question still stands. Can we expect someone to act against their nature because we're nice to them? Will someone go against their own self-interest if we ask extra nicely? Sometimes the answer is yes. But that sphere of self-sacrifice largely implodes when one single factor is added to the pot. Power. Today, I want to talk about the crocodile tears of politicians that put up no meaningful opposition to power. So, that means I'm going to talk about Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. So, earlier this week, she went on an online version of the insufferable James Corden's insufferable late-night show. And in the midst of a pandemic, where around half of young people have already lost their jobs, and the pre-pandemic net worth of Americans under 35 was $11,100, they open with a shot of her standing in front of a $24,000 refrigerator, with a sweater tied around her neck, talking about how much she loves the hundreds of dollars of ice cream that's stashed inside. Of course, during a time of shortages and empty shelves, when a lot of Americans are having an incredibly difficult time even affording food, do you think the world's most irritating talk show host brings the segment to any degree beyond a puff piece? Do you think he asks any serious questions of the most powerful woman in American politics? No, of course not. He laughs with Pelosi, shoring up her pathetic attempt at relatability by saying, I've always felt a connection with you, and now I understand why. Which is, in my opinion, one of the most contrived responses I've ever heard in my entire life. As if they could be friends and go to brunch, and that Nancy Pelosi cares who he is. Putting aside Corden's fittingly idiotic response, the incredible iniquity on display is absolutely shocking. Ha! Huh. 
The American people don't have any food? <laughs> well, let them eat ice cream. The two-party nature of American politics has led a lot of capital D Democrats to believe that everyone on the blue side is good, that all of the Democrats are fighting the Republicans to the benefit of the American people. Personally, I could think of no greater a fiction. It's all a performance. For Democrats and Republicans alike, life's a stage. It doesn't matter what they're actually doing, as long as you think that they're fighting each other. Remember that big phony outrage when, at the end of the State of the Union, Pelosi stood up and tore her copy of the speech clean in half? Ah, great job, Queen. Maybe if you wanted that to mean anything, then you shouldn't have passed all of his legislation through the House, funded those kids in cages that you claimed to abhor, and gave him a bigger military budget than even he asked for. But of course, that is not the point that a lot of Democrats drew away from that. Because to people who only care about the aesthetics of politics, ripping up a speech is an infinitely bigger burn than thwarting every single one of his administration's policy goals. All that matters is the appearance of opposition. That's why, on the by and large, the status quo doesn't change when the other party regains power. This is something that I talked about a few weeks ago in my episode about why Joe Biden is so categorically awful, so I won't necessarily go into it in the same depth. There is, um, well, first I feel that it's important to point out that there's this conception in America that we're split 50-50 down the middle, Democrats and Republicans. As a matter of fact, only 29% of Americans are Democrats, 30 are Republicans, 39% are independent, with the remaining 2% going to a third party. Now, as I was saying, there's this dominating perception among establishment Democrats that everything was just fine and dandy before Trump, that the Trump administration is uniquely awful in terms of its policy goals, and that all America needs is a return to normalcy in the form of an establishment Democrat president, in this case, Joe Biden. And those people probably have the worst political instincts and the most shallow historical understanding of anyone on earth. Before Trump, both parties pursued the same vicious policy goals of austerity and exploitation, but veiled in a cloak of decency and respectability that shielded them from the attacks of those whom their policies had made suffer. In the realm of policy, personal proclivities notwithstanding, the only thing that Donald Trump has done is draw back the curtain. He has laid bare and made obvious the cruelty of the American system that has always devoured the sick and the poor for the sake of the Dow Jones. As a result, the people who would be allies of such a president during past decades now must play resistance. So open is the cruelty of the Trump administration that the American people cannot look away. Many now long for the quiet, respectable cruelty of years past. 
And as a result, you have the Speaker of the House tearing up the State of the Union address while simultaneously capitulating to almost every single Republican policy goal. I wonder, sometimes, what it would take for the average centrist Democrat to realize that their party does not care about them. Because obviously, right now, something's not clicking. I mean, I said it in last episode when I was mocking the editors of the Washington Post, but it's applicable here too. Do you think that Nancy Pelosi cares about you any more than Mitch McConnell does? Even if these people weren't representatives, their sheer access and proximity to wealth automatically means that they cannot relate to the average American. How is someone going to, with a straight face, say that they're fighting for your interests when their fridge costs what you make in a year, when they have none of the same concerns as you do? They don't have to worry about seeing the doctor or being able to afford rent this month or being laid off in the middle of a depression. As a matter of fact, Congress is in recess right now, which means that while the rest of the American people are suffering at the hands of a one-two punch pandemic and depression, our representatives are effectively on vacation. There's no remote voting in Congress, so even if someone writes the perfect piece of legislation that will miraculously solve all of our problems, then it still can't be brought to the floor. And the absolute earliest that they could return to session? May 4th. Congress isn't just on a recess right now. They're on an extended recess. And guess what? The decision to grant that recess without the ability for remote voting? It was bipartisan. Does that sound like the actions of a party that's fighting for you? I didn't think so. These people, it's in their nature. They have always put the almighty dollar over human well-being. They don't care about us because we're not the one cutting them checks. The annual salary for a member of the House of Representatives is $174,000. Nancy Pelosi has a personal fortune of $16 million. In order to amass that from her government pay, she would only have to be a member of Congress for, let's see, a measly 91 years. She's only served uh, 33 which is itself a great argument for congressional term limits. But, to put it succinctly, neither party cares about you. Personal and donor financial interests will always come before your well-being. Case and point, right now the Federal Reserve is engaging in a $2 trillion corporate bailout. This bailout is going to be steered by a Federal Oversight Committee, which means that they get to pick and choose who gets federal funds. Now, Representative Katie Porter, a progressive Democrat from California's 45th Congressional District, who is a sitting member of the House Oversight and Financial Services Committees, um, two incredibly relevant positions, I might add, actively sought a place on the oversight panel, which Nancy Pelosi was given the responsibility of staffing. Do you think she named Porter to the committee? 
absolutely not. Instead, she tapped Representative Donna Shalala, a freshman congresswoman from Florida's 27th Congressional District, who was a member of the House Rules Committee and the Committee on Education and Labor. That might seem like a very confusing pick. Why choose a new congresswoman with no relevant experience to oversee one of the most important federal economic plans in a generation? Well, the answer becomes clear when you look at Donna's stock portfolio. Every company that she owns shares in has a connection to bailout cash, either as a significant claimant or as a servicer. She's invested in AMC Theaters, Five Below, United Health, Paramount Pictures, Burlington Coat Factory, Choice Hotels, Live Nation, J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, BNY Mellon, HSBC, BBVA Compass, and two very important ones. She owns shares in Moellis & Company, which the Treasury designated as an advisor to the bailout process, and BlackRock the company the Fed hired to manage federal bailout programs. Now it makes sense, doesn't it? Someone who's qualified, someone who has principles, they don't want that kind of person to oversee a $2 trillion bailout. No, they would rather have someone who is entirely out of their depth, but is just smart enough and just unscrupulous enough to wield their power to the benefit of themselves and their allies. They don't care about you. It's not in their nature. And how could we expect someone to disavow their false prophets for the sake of a stranger? How could we expect the lion not to eat us? Before I go, if this episode gave you a less-than-favorable opinion on Nancy Pelosi, then there's a progressive Democrat running to defeat her who you should know about. He supports the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, reduction in military spending, strengthening of labor rights, housing guarantee, criminal justice and immigration reform, and much more. His name is Shahid Buttar. Check out his website, www.shahidforchange.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-D for change. His Twitter handle is the same thing. Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History. Signing off. See, I've always felt a connection with you, and now I understand why. Mm-hmm.